0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrensmele, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Today's guest received lots of training about physical safety before he went in to report from dangerous places like war zones. But not once, he said, did his news organization address mental health for the reporters and staff on the ground. Many jobs bring about PTSD, even jobs that have to do with writing and editing. Today's guest is someone who worked for over 25 years as a journalist, traveling the world and seeing things that most of us don't. And when he realized he needed help, his company wasn't really there for him. Dean Yates is an author and mental health advocate based in Tasmania. He wrote the book, Line in the Sand. The book tells a story That is serious and tragic, including mention of self-harm and suicide, which we'll talk about. It's also a story of trauma, of being obsessed with work and your career, and the feelings you experience when you lose that identity that's so deeply tied to your workplace. And it's a book that is really honest and intense in a way that sometimes made me feel uncomfortable The episode will come in two parts, one where we get more of Dean's story of trauma and why he was drawn to war journalism in the first place, and the second half focusing more on work and work structures that maybe need to be changed. I began by asking Dean about his honesty and the way that he faced some of the things that make people most uncomfortable when telling his story.
1: The motivation for writing this book was to tell the truth, to be really upfront about what trauma does to people, what it does to families, what it does to relationships. And you can't tell that unless you really tell everything. And so that's why it is intense and it is is everything. Everything's in there. You can't leave stuff out and then hope that people are going to get it right. And I think what is different about my book is the impact on the family, the impact on the relationship with my life partner, my wife. That's what I think makes it some very different to others.
0: It's very different. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Why did you want to become a journalist?
1: Yes, yeah, so I actually didn't know I wanted to be a journalist until I climbed the Berlin Wall in 1990. And for a lot of people, that's obviously one of the, the great news events. Going back a few decades, I'd actually gone to university. I'd studied economics. I was working for a big accounting firm. But I found myself in Europe just after the berlin wall had come down communism was collapsing th- around eastern europe and i just i found myself in this part of the world where history was being made and to me it was like that was what i wanted to do for the rest of my life was to witness history and i wanted to be there when it was happening i wanted to record it And I wanted to try and make sense of it and interpret it. And so after climbing the Berlin Wall, which was still there, this was only a few months after the wall had been breached, I was in uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and then I was in Moscow. And Gorbachev was still in power. It it was just such a fascinating time to be a backpacker. That's what I was. I was just backpacking through Europe. And that just changed my life. And, And so I got back home to Australia, quit my job. Uh, as an accountant. And from then on, it was just, I had to be a foreign correspondent. And a couple of years later, I found myself in Indonesia, and that's where I got hired by Reuters.
0: I would imagine some people might think, we do have such a romanticized almost picture of the foreign correspondent. It's one of those iconic job roles. There are movies, great books about foreign correspondents. Did you have a risk-seeking profile, do you think? that made you seek out those super intense locations and stories?
1: I'm not sure about risk-seeking profile, but I definitely wanted to be where history was occurring. I definitely wanted to cover war without having any clue what war was like. Mm. And I was definitely influenced by the great war correspondents who covered the Vietnam War. People like Neil Sheehan, people like Neil Davis, who was a cameraman from Australia, Michael Herr, the great US war reporter – and I think that left a real imprint on a lot of journalists from around the world, those folks who covered the Vietnam War. And that was also in my part of the world, right? I'm Australian, we're in, we're in Asia. And Australians have always loved to travel. Australian journalists have always loved to get out into the world and see what's going on. And, and so I think it's just part of our nature to do so. And joining Reuters when I did, at the age of 25, biggest multimedia news agency in the world. It just – it offered up so much opportunity. And this was before – obviously, this is before social media. It's before the internet. It's before mobile phones. And so this was in an age when journalists had to actually go out and get the story and bring the story back or phone the story in because there was no other way for people to get their information. And so the job of a foreign correspondent really involved a hell of a lot of reporting and going out there and traveling And the news gathering was a very big part of the job. And I just loved it.
0: What did you love about it?
1: I loved getting to places. I mean, I just love the challenge of, you know, I spent nearly 10 years working in Indonesia. Indonesia is a country that was full of all sorts of stories, whether it was natural disasters, political upheaval, but sometimes getting to these places could take two days because it was just such yeah, biggest archipelago in the world. And when you're trying to get to places when there's been some sort of natural disaster or catastrophe, that's often a challenge in itself. And that was just something that I always found a good challenge. Like, how are we going to get there? How are we going to get our kid in? And how? And then, and then, how are you going to get the story out? But I guess people have forgotten how difficult these sorts of stories were to cover. You know, I covered the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia's Aceh province. Those waves wiped out everything—telecommunications, yeah. everything—and so for us, as a as a Reuters team, we had twelve people up there. One of the biggest challenges for us was getting the news out, getting the stories out, getting the photographs, the TV footage. So that was using, you know, OK satellite phones, but it was still difficult and it still required a lot of sort of technical understanding of how this sort of equipment worked and carrying a lot of equipment around.
0: Yeah, right. It was a physical and logistical challenge in a way that we probably with our iPhones today just can't even imagine.
1: That was part of the adventure, I think, of being a foreign correspondent as well, because you had to get into these places and then gather the news and then get your stories out. And I think that's where a lot of the romanticism of being a foreign correspondent came from. But a lot of us didn't realize that we were also gathering a lot of trauma Mm. in the course of our work. And no one ever talked about that. No one. No, no, no one ever talked about the, I mean, I'll give you an example. So I was based in Jerusalem in 2006. I was the deputy bureau chief for Reuters for Israel and Palestine. Very big operation we had there. And I was asked if I wanted to apply for the Reuters bureau chief job in Baghdad. Mm. This was the end of 2006. This was a time when Iraq was already spiraling into civil war. And the bureau chief was leaving and the bosses asked me if I wanted to apply for it. And this was basically the toughest job in the organization anywhere in the world. Uh, 160,000 US troops in Iraq. Bloodshed was off the charts. And in the conversations I had with my wife, Mary, you know, with three young kids, we we're interested and we were very happy there. We never talked about PTSD once. We never talked about the impact that role might have on my mental health. We talked about whether I might get killed. Yeah. We talked about the responsibilities of running an operation of 100 people. We talked about the pressures of the story. We talked about how challenging it was going to be. But never once did we talk about how it might affect me mentally. And that was only in 2006.
0: And all those years of you traveling around the world and doing tough assignments, there was never a senior journalist who took you aside and said, like, hey, you need to prepare yourself for this?
1: No. Well, we had had lots of training on physical safety. So we do these hostile environment courses. News organizations around the world did them. In Baghdad, for example, my colleagues, we, we shared a compound with the New York Times and the Associated Press and the BBC. We'd all been through these hostile environment courses where we were taught first aid how to treat a gunshot wound or how to negotiate a, a militant checkpoint or what to do if landmines were going off, that sort of stuff. But this stuff didn't deal with the psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. All news organisations were the same when it came to this. And after I covered the tsunami in Aceh, The managing editor for Asia said, "You need to go and see a psychologist. Talk to a psychologist." And I said, "I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me." And but he insisted I do this, and so I went and I went had one session, and I just (laughs) thought this is a waste of time, and I never went back because there was just no. We just weren't talking about it. I, I think journalism was really one of the last professions to understand the risks of traumatic news coverage, and as a result, a lot of journalists are suffering.
0: Yeah. Why did they suggest you see a psychologist after the tsunami?
1: I mean, in, in Arche alone, 166,000 people were killed in 20 minutes. This was the biggest, one of the biggest natural disasters in modern times. And I, I think it was probably obvious to the the editors that this was going to affect people. But all I wanted to do was to go back and keep covering the story. And I went back six months later to report on the what was happening and I went back on the first anniversary to report on what was happening. And I think my sort of way of dealing with with these sort of events was to just keep covering the news, keep doing it. And that was the same for most of my colleagues as well and it was a there was something about the 2000s. It was so busy. You had the war in Iraq, you had the war in Afghanistan and you had these huge natural disasters that were occurring around the world. There was the war on terror. There were there were big bombs going off all over the world. There was just no let up.
0: You talk about the nightclub bombing in Bali, which is something Mm. I had forgotten about, but that was also, I would assume, a very traumatic experience for you in retrospect.
1: Yeah, it really was, Maura, because uh, this was, from memory, this was the biggest terrorist attack after 9-11. And so, 202 people killed, including 88 Australians, and this... I think what Bali did was it showed that nowhere in the world was safe. Right. Here were holidaymakers, right? Young people, 18, 19 years old, first trip abroad, and a a massive car bomb has just gone off outside these nightclubs in Bali. I mean, how how evil can you get? And that was, I think, really, for a lot of journalists, that, that that was a terrible story to cover. And what people don't realize, I think, is that this is our job. We have to go and cover it. But we, we carry scars from this sort of stuff because some of these events are just so shocking. And I mean, it took me it took me a long time to get over Bali. And, and it was partly because 88 Australians were killed. I'm Australian. But I loved Indonesia too. I'd lived a long time in Indonesia. And, and so I spoke Indonesian. Indonesia really felt like part of my home. And so, when something like that happens, you have a job to do. You've got to do it. But it it really does affect you as a human being.
0: Right. And your job as a journalist is to bear witness and then process Correct. the story for the rest of us.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> honestly, when a big story like this happens, the urgency and, and the demand for that news is it is just, it is intense. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, the world turns its attention to what is happening, say, Bali, for example or when a bomb goes off somewhere. The pressure that comes on to journalists when these sorts of events happen is enormous. Not only just getting the facts straight, but then try and make sense of it for an international audience. What does this mean? Mm -hmm. What are the ramifications of this? You know, when you go into a a story like Bali, this is not going to be over after one or two days. This sort of story is going to go on for weeks. And it did. And the thing about Bali was that my wife, she was eight months pregnant when those bombs exploded. And so we're in the middle of, okay, my wife was going to go back to Australia to give birth. We had to change those plans. She ended up going to Singapore. My younger son was born six weeks after the Bali bombings. But when he was born, that story was still so stuck in my head that I was just not really present, right? I'm in the operating theater while my son's being born. And yet, my body is telling me that I wanted to be back in the newsroom covering that story yeah and, and part of it was this the numbness that I had encased myself in because of the trauma of that whole event that I just couldn't feel the joy of birth.
0: There's a theme in your book of you wanting almost to escape your family and yeah. get back to the story. that's a that's totally. a theme that runs through.
1: You'll find this, I like I, I found this in the psych ward. So the three admissions I had to a psych ward in Melbourne with a lot of veterans, a lot of coppers, it's exactly the same. And this, there's a real commonality amongst people who've had this sort of occupational trauma is that in, in a sort of a weird way, we feel actually more comfortable in that situation. We'd prefer to be actually doing what we do, whether it's reporting the news or being in a police car or being in the the military, because that's what we know and that's what we've got the muscle memory for. The problem is when you step out of that role and you step away from that sort of comradeship and you end up back in a family situation where life is quiet and peaceful, relatively speaking, (laughs) it's very hard for people who've got PTSD then to be able to live if you like, a normal life, because their their brains are just wired completely different. Their bodies are wired. And that's when a lot of the problems start to emerge. And this is what I write about in the book is just life was hell for my family because I was so angry and irritable and depressed. And this was at a time when this was before we had much understanding of it. And I was not a nice person to be around.
0: You write that trauma is like a cluster bomb. Everyone around you gets hurt.
1: Yes, Yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's worse because, with men especially, men display a lot of anger. And men are just not very good at expressing themselves. They're not very good at reaching out for help. I was in denial for years that I was not well. I used to just push my wife away and say, Look, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me, but I was really struggling. And I think that's a big issue for a lot of men is actually trying to understand that, yes, you have got a problem and you do need to get help listening to your loved ones. And that anger, when it manifests, it's a a relationship killer. I mean, I am very lucky that Mary, my wife, has stayed with me despite the anger that I showed.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough so more than a retirement plan tiaa makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life a promise that pays off learn more at tiaa.org backslash promises pay off from the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors i'm laura schmidt host of the redefining work podcast Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Let's talk about the sort of crucible moment, it seems like, where the PTSD that had been gathering for years at that point almost took you down, and that happened in Iraq. Do you mind just setting it up a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. No, it's – so this is July 12, 2007, and this was the height of the Iraq war. Uh, I was the bureau chief. We had gone through a period of six months of unrelenting violence. The U.S. surge had been underway for about five months. A lot of American listeners would, would remember the surge. hmm It was a a last-ditch attempt to try to stop Iraq from spiraling into complete and utter destruction. And so there were a a lot of extra troops in Iraq, and two of my staff were out just doing their job, looking for a story. They'd heard reports of a U.S. airstrike on a building in eastern Baghdad, and they found themselves with a group of men, some of whom appeared to have been armed. That group came under attack by a U.S. Apache gunship, and virtually all the men were killed, including my staff, a photographer Namir Noor Eldin, and a driver, Sayed Chum.
0: And children were wounded, and two a children
1: similar. were wounded. Yes, that's right. There was a minivan that came along uh, a few minutes after the initial attack, and actually sought to rescue the Reuters driver, Sayed Chum, who was wounded but still alive. A uh, Good Samaritan van driver pulls up, gets out. A couple of other bystanders come along, and they grab Sayed and they try to put him in the van. And that's when the second attack occurs, and This event would have probably remained just one of thousands of events in the history of the war in Iraq, except that footage of that attack was leaked by Chelsea Manning to WikiLeaks. And it was published in 2010 by Julian Assange. And it has sort of become, I guess, synonymous with the war in Iraq. And, And Julian called it collateral murder. And for me, in so many different ways, it was my undoing, my mental undoing, because there's my staff getting killed, and it's just a mouse click away. For me, there was there's all sorts of emotions and, and conflict tied up in that, in particular the fact that I wasn't able to protect them and that when the footage was released in 2010, I did nothing, I didn't speak up publicly, I didn't say anything about what had happened that day, and I also didn't try to get Reuters to push for an independent investigation of what happened and so as a result the US military narrative of what happened was that an investigation had been carried out the rules of engagement were followed which wasn't the case
0: and your staff was mad at you you I mean oh yeah I in a way this will resonate with any manager in a much less dangerous setting but your staff after the incident felt like you hadn't Shown up,
1: yeah. They felt that I'd really let them down, and they and they let me know too. They told me that, and so yeah. When, when people get killed, right, and you feel like you failed, when you feel like you have failed, that carries with it psychological consequences. And for me, it was this. It wasn't just that I'd been a poor leader that I'd been a bad bureau chief, but people had been killed on my watch. Mm-hmm. And not only had I failed to protect them, but then I didn't have the courage to stand up and be counted when I should have. And this all culminated basically for me years later, I, I was suicidal over this. You know, I felt such guilt and such shame. It's what's called a moral injury. It's the moral dimension of trauma, if you like, but it's it's essentially when people's notion of what's right has been deeply violated. And in my case, it was that I had failed in my duty as a bureau chief, as a, as a leader, to protect my staff and to fulfill the obligations and duties that that role carried with it. And I, I failed. You know, you'll find examples of this throughout modern day, current day, and history where that guilt and shame has brought people down mm. because they can't live with themselves. They feel such intense worthlessness, and they just self-destruct. Moral injury is not a mental illness as such, and so it's a bit difficult to diagnose. But it does have very similar symptoms to post-traumatic stress disorder. And for me, I, I guess I was lucky because I had a colleague who had suggested I look into moral injury. And then as soon as I started googling it, all of this this information started coming up out of the states, the US. Of moral injury in veterans, mm. and when I started reading this, it just struck me: yeah, this is this is what I'm feeling. This is how I feel. This describes how I feel. One of the pioneers in this whole concept of moral injury is from Boston University, a, a guy called Brett Litz, mm. and he and and some of his colleagues had done a lot of research and worked with a lot of veterans that showed that for a lot of these folks who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, it wasn't the fear or the threat that affected them, but it was it was what they had done yes. that was really troubling them, like killing civilians or not being able to protect a buddy or not spotting an IED that may have exploded. Or then when they've come home, feeling abandoned by their country, feeling abandoned by the VA. You, you know what I mean? And this was different to PTSD. And for me, when I read that stuff, I thought, yep, yeah, that's me.
0: There's been data on this, even for people who are civilians, people who, God forbid, hit someone while they're driving, or Correct. right? You know, getting an accident that that yep. kills someone, that that lingering guilt and trauma, right?
1: Yeah, that's right, more. And now there's research done on first responders, people in public health. You look at COVID, right? This is where it's really started to expand a bit more. Is look at doctors physicians who've had to make really tough decisions during COVID, who got a ventilator, Mm -hmm. who got treatment, telling loved ones they couldn't see their dying family member Mm. because of COVID, right? And so you can see why moral injury is different to PTSD, right, which is that classic fear threat, life threat type scenario. Moral injury is a wound to the soul, whereas PTSD, it's sort of more of a bodily brain type injury.
0: We'll pause there for today. You can hear the rest of Dean's story and his relationship with mental health and work, dropping in this feed on Friday. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.